Welcome to the politicalbetting.com polling matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, today is a day that Theresa May has officially fired the starting gun in the 2017 general election. Now the real action begins. But the campaign starts amid acrimony between the British government and the European Union. Leaked accounts of private dinners paint a picture of Theresa May and her government being ill-prepared for Brexit talks, whilst Theresa May herself has accused the EU today of trying to interfere in the British democratic process. On today's show, we'll be discussing some of these issues and how the campaign has gone so far, what the public think about it all, and what the opinion polls tell us about what's to come. We'll also be unveiling the latest in our series of polls with Opinion. So, today I am joined by regular contributor to Polling Matters, Adam Drummond, from Opinion, and newcomer to the show, Adam Payne, um, political reporter at Business Insider UK. Gentlemen, welcome to Polling Matters. Thanks Thank you very much for having me. So, um, lots, to, lots to cover today. I mean, before we get into some of the numbers, uh, Adam Payne, I'll come to you. I mean, what do you make of the uh, campaign insofar as there has been one uh, so far? Oh, well, firstly, thank you very much for having me. And on to the campaign. Um, I think it's fair to say Labour has been very policy heavy. We've seen a lot of policies being launched by Labour. Corbyn's been doing what Corbyn does best. He's been around the country visiting constituencies, uh, knocking on doors. And Theresa May has played a pretty low-key affair so far. She's been criticised for not actually mingling with the public, kind of blocking out journalists. Um, and obviously that, uh, she was criticised yesterday for... And as a journalist, I imagine you're furious about this. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I mean, the Conservatives seem to run a much tighter ship generally, but of course it's frustrating when she's regurgitating sound bites and not really saying anything particularly interesting. But I mean, she's, she's got a comfortable lead in opinion polls, so Theresa May doesn't need to take any massive risks. Um, Jamie Corbyn's playing catch-up, as we know. That's probably why he's going around the country making these really bold policy pitches. I think Jamie Corbyn has actually had a pretty sound campaign so far. Uh, but as... Um, can I come on to the numbers? As we... Yeah, sure. As, the, as these numbers show, um, the, public, the public believes... Well, when asked who's running a better campaign, uh, the public said Theresa May, 41% good campaign, 22 bad campaign. But with Jamie Corbyn, 21 good campaign... 40% bad campaign. So, I mean, despite, you know, the, the opinions of journalists like myself thinking Corbyn's had quite a good campaign and Theresa May's has been maybe a bit boring, a bit quiet, the public's still siding with Theresa May. And I think the main reason for that is perception. You know, Corbyn and Theresa May, they have reputations that predate this snap election. For the general public, Theresa May is calm, she's sensible, she's a safe pair of hands. And Jamie Corbyn is chaotic and a government under his leadership would not be could, couldn't be trusted in areas like economy and defence. Mm. And I think what these numbers are, rather than an actual reflection of the quality of the campaign, they're basically just approval ratings of Jamie Corbyn and Theresa May, and also a reflection of um, public perception that has been there long before this election got underway. This, uh, I, I would share a lot of that. I mean, I, I tweeted yesterday that I thought that objectively, Theresa May hasn't had a very good campaign, but then several people on social media threw back at me, well, if the public thinks she has, then she kind of has. I mean, Adam Drummond, uh, from Opinion, I mean, what do you make of some of this? I mean, it feels like Labour are sort of uh, improving a little bit in the opinion polls, but at the same time, I mean, as Adam says, these are really difficult, uh, long-held opinions to shift. Yeah, I think, I think my fellow Adam is completely correct on that. <laughs> that the uh, questions like who's having a good campaign or a bad campaign are just another way of saying I like this person, I dislike this person or this party. Um, back in 2015, I remember seeing endless complaints from journalists about how stage managed and artificial and inauthentic the Conservative campaign seemed to be. And as we all know, it was a stunning success. So mm -hmm. um, actually talking about the campaign itself, um, I think is 
it's more sensible to talk about you know, the underlying issues and the underlying perceptions of each leader. So, I mean, the, the simple fact is that you know, Theresa May doesn't really need for there to be a campaign. She's, uh, you know, it's a purely sort of um, defensive thing as far as where she is in the opinion polls. She doesn't need to do anything spectacular in the campaign. She just needs the election to happen while the polls show that she's going to win enormously. It's the Labour Party that are playing catch-up. I mean, we'll come back to the um, campaign itself in a minute, but there does seem to have been a move towards Labour in the opinion polls. I mean, I've got a poll of polls here, uh, which I've put together myself, and there are several versions of this sort of thing about, and I'm not saying this one is necessarily gospel, but I, I literally took the latest poll from about six pollsters, uh, like Salvation, Opinion, Ipsos Mori, Comres, uh, YouGov, and uh, one other that escapes me, I think it was ICM. And we, we have uh, the Conservatives on 46, Labour 28, Lib Dems 10, UKIP 7, Greens 3, other 6. And a couple of things strike me here, really. One is that the Labour Party does not seem to be down in the doldrums, as it kind of was a couple of weeks ago. And many people, at least on that side of the political argument, fear it may end up. And equally, the Liberal Democrats, on 10, only two percentage points ahead of where they were in 2015. This assumed surge, based on Remain... Um, hasn't happened. I mean, what do you make of the polls? Because I must admit, I, I saw several, including one of yours, at the weekend that had Labour on 30 or even more, and I was quite surprised by that. Yeah, it's. I wonder if part of this is because in 2015 it seemed like a really close race, and the idea that yeah, Ed Miliband could actually be Prime Minister put a lot of people off uh, voting Labour and, and moving the balls back to Conservative instead. I think the fact that the 2017 election is so clearly a one-sided affair and it's, and the result seems really obvious, it's just a question of how many you know, mm. digits the Tory majority is going to be, that maybe it's a bit safer to vote Labour this time if you know that, if you don't trust Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister, it's a bit, you know, it's easier to justify that vote to say, oh, This I is the Blair line, isn't it? This is the check, blank yeah. check line, isn't it? So that, that may be part of it. The other thing to always remember, though, is that it's possible that polls haven't rectified what went wrong in 2015 and they may still be over-representing Labour groups because one of the issues that happened with the polls that year was that we had too many overly engaged political type people taking part in polls and it's unclear whether that's been properly corrected or not. And so whether a similar thing has happened in 2015 when actually the most accurate polls are the ones that happened before the campaign really got into gear mm. and showed the Tories several points ahead, maybe something similar is happening here where over-enthusiastic, you know, the loud Labour people rather than the shy Tory people um, are coming through in polls rather than um, Labour actually making any real progress. I want to bring Adam Payne back in in a moment, but um, before we do, one on that political engagement point, that makes perfect sense, but maybe doesn't explain why there isn't this shift from Labour to Lib Dem, mm. because it presumably that Labour and Liberal Democrat voters are all part of the same sort of issue. So it still surprises me that the Lib Dems aren't up there in the 15s or wherever it might be. I mean, do you think that's partly because of this Blair blank check line that means that maybe the Labour vote seems at least to be mm. a bit more resilient? Yeah, that's certainly possible. I mean, again, and it, uh, you rightly say that exactly the kind of group of people who you would think would defect from Labour to the Lib Dems over Brexit are exactly the kind of people who would probably end up being overrepresented in polls. So in theory, we should mm. be seeing this yeah, in a magnified way rather than um, it being understated. 
Um, but yeah, no, it is quite remarkable that um, for all the talk of there being a big sort of Lib Dem surge, it doesn't seem to be coming through in national level polls at least. Mm. I mean, there's talk of um, how difficult it would be for them to scale the blue wall of Tory seats in the southwest. But that's a that's a constituency issue. That's an electoral system issue. That shouldn't really affect that. Well, we've heard about blue walls before uh, <laughs> in the mid in the midwest yeah, exactly, in America. Yeah. I mean, as I'm paying uh, from Business Insider. Um, as a journalist, you're looking at these opinion polls, but you, you, you form your own view, of course, as to what, what you feel is going on through interviewing politicians and members of the public. I mean, is where the polls are at the moment surprising to you, not just in terms of the Labour Conservative vote, but more generally? I think the Lib Dem element is quite surprising. Um, the fact that they haven't really taken lift off so far in the polls. And what, what one of the big storylines coming into a snap election is, you know, will the Lib Dems hoover up that Remain vote? especially Labour voters, or former Labour voters who feel kind of let down by Jeremy Corbyn's position, you know, in, instructing a three-in-line whip on the Article mm. 50 vote, etc. But, yeah, if, to me, that's a big surprise that the, the Lib Dem vote hasn't really taken off yet. Um, I've, I've, on the Lib Dems, just sorry to interrupt, on the Lib Dems, there was, I mean, we were talking about the campaign earlier, there was a big mm. incident today with Tim Farron, wasn't there? Um, indeed. For the, be- for the benefit of listeners that may have not seen that, I doubt, I doubt they wouldn't have done, but uh, it's been all over the news. But Tim Farron was accosted by a uh, passionate Leave voter, shall we say, who was uh, pretty critical of the Lib Dem leader for wanting to um, reverse Brexit. And Tim Farron, I felt, seemed to handle it quite well. I mean, what was your perception of this? Because it's always an awkward situation, isn't it, for politicians when they're accosted by... Uh, the so-called real people. <laughs> I thought he handled it tremendously well. I mean, obviously, in the moment, it would have been incredibly awkward for him, and mm. perhaps it was embarrassing, and, you know, he had a supporter there who used some foul language, which isn't, which isn't ideal. But I thought he handled it really well. He listened to this gentleman. He, he took what he said on board. He engaged him. He asked him questions. And, and, I, and you know, he used it really well. Then the, the line Lib Dems took from that is, look at our leader talking to members of the public, even members of the public who, you know, passionately disagrees with him. He's still talking with them. And, you know, that's ammunition against mm. um, Theresa May, who has been accused of shutting herself off into, into rooms with only Conservative members and, you know, running away from journalists. So I think, you know, it's one of the... It's, it's, uh, it's a kind of a typical election campaign moment, a politician coming into confrontation with a member of the public. But I think for Tim Farron, it was a... Uh, it was a, a positive thing for him. I think it really helped his image. I think the uh, I think Adam's right. The, the, Lib, the Lib Dems have spun that pretty well, it's, and it's an especially nice contrast with Theresa May. But I mean, that said, these kind of things always seem to get reported in the same way, which is politician X gets bollocked by a voter. So <laughs> there's a question of whether or not that uh, you know that does him uh, good or harm. I think. Yeah. I mean, what is, I mean, what is it about Tim Farron? Because he sort of comes across quite likable. But again, we haven't seen this surge in the polls for Liberal Democrats. Uh, it may yet come, of course, and we'll come on to some of the reasons why later. Um, but I guess one of the things that I've noticed in polling is that ultimately a lot of people don't really know who he is, do mm. they? So is that, do you think that would hold Lib Dems back a bit in this campaign? I think the Lib Dems since 2015 really suffered from the fact that they aren't the third party anymore. Mm. And so they don't get that, that automatic seat on question time. They don't get... Um, you know, cover, they don't get helped by you know, the broadcasting partiality rules in the same way that they did before. So they really have to shout and scream for airtime more than they did before. Um, I mean, they would be the natural party to step into the role of opposition if people felt that Labour and Jeremy Corbyn weren't doing it. But in Prime Minister's questions, that tends to be done by the SNP instead. So they've, they've missed out a lot on that. Um, I think part of the other um, issue they have is that Tim Farron comes across as 
a very you know, energetic and enthusiastic campaigning guy. He's, he's a, he comes across as a very you know, passionate you know, local issues man um, who you know, is going to help make sure that they get proper road signs put in down the street and stop mm. that school from closing and things like that. But does he look like a Prime Minister? That's does always he need the to? issue. Well, that's a very good point. But if you are, if you're a political party, ultimately that's that's your ultimate goal, surely, mm. is to say, hey, we want to be the government, or at least you know, we want to be the the largest party, or we want to be the opposition. And I think that that may be an issue. Which, if they had, let's say, a sort of magical, untainted pre twenty ten Nick Clegg, it's possible to see them doing a bit better. I, I'll I'll put forward two theories as well for perhaps why the Lib Dems haven't really had lift off. Firstly, I think a lot of people. A lot of Labour voters, for example, maybe 2015 Labour voters, perhaps would like to vote for the Liberal Democrats, but they associate that party with the coalition. Mm. Um, of course, under Nick Clegg, the Lib- a lot of people say the Lib Dems were complicit with the austerity programme. Um, so, you know, making the jump from Labour to Lib Dem because of the referendum might sound quite obvious and quite simple, just saying it now. But for a lot of people to, to jump to a party... You know, which was complicit. It was only two years ago that they took a real exactly. shellacking at the election. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, I didn't think people two years ago would have expected Lib Dems to be back on the scene this this early. And, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to forget, to put the back mm. of your mind. If you're someone who's passionately opposed to austerity politics, then jumping ship to the Lib Dems, no matter how strongly remain you are, it's not something you can do easily. And secondly, I think for a lot of people, as lots of polls have picked up, or polls that I've seen, uh, even a lot of re- people who voted Remain just want Theresa May to get on with it. Mm. And what the Lib Dems are offering at the moment, their kind of anti-Brexit, anti-hard Brexit platform, whatever you want to call it, is quite a short-term offering. I mean, mm. as soon as Brexit's done, as soon as we leave the single market, you see when it happens, and then what? what what's the Lib Dems' message then? Mm. Well, let's, let's, um, let's move on uh, to the latest uh, polling matters opinion survey. Um, Adam brings up the issue of uh, stopping Brexit. So one of the things that regular listeners will know that we've been tracking over time is this idea about a second EU referendum. So just to be really clear on the wording, this is a question that we've asked in December, in March, and then again this last weekend, which is once we know what terms the government has negotiated, should there be a second referendum on Britain's membership of the EU, where voters can choose between leaving under the terms negotiated or remaining in the EU after all? And the people that said yes, there should be a second referendum, uh, 36%. People that said no, 53%. Don't know, 11 So a clear majority there of the British public against a second referendum. Now, how does that compare to uh, our trend? Well, just to simplify this a bit and just look at the number that there should be. In December of 2017, there was 33% said there should be. Uh, sorry, December of 2016, sorry. Um, in March of 2017, 38%. Uh, said there should be, so a five percentage point increase. But today, 36%, so dropping back down two points. So, Adam Drummond, I mean, what do you make of some of these numbers? Because it does seem, again, there's a pretty consistent message uh, of, of there not being a second referendum. And just to put the specific numbers to that, 52%, 52%, 53%. There's a consistent line mm. there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, this is, it, it, it's almost uh, reflecting the way that it's happened in the way that the various parties have aligned themselves. But the general story is that 52%, the Leave vote, is fairly unified behind their position, whereas the Remain vote is a bit more fractured. Mm. I mean, saying that, even if it was completely unified on both sides, it would still be a majority in favour of not having a referendum. Um, if you just look at Remain voters, they go from being, in December, 59% of them saying, 
we want a second referendum, and then it went up to 66% in March and now down to 64%. And you compare that with um, Leave voters who oppose a second referendum, it goes from 81% to 83% to 85%. So mm. although you could say that... Um, opposed, we should say. Opposed, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, although you could say that the, uh, the Remain vote is was looking like it was hardening in favour of the second referendum, that stalled slightly. Mm. Meanwhile, the Leave vote is just as uh, united behind opposing that as they ever were. So one of the things I'm interested in is uh, if we look at the Remain vote, so you've, you've identified obviously um, 64% of Remain voters say they want a second referendum. 26% of Remain voters, so one in four, say they don't. And I'm curious about that audience because... Mm. I guess, hypothetically, you know, you'd have thought Remain voters would, would want a second referendum. Clearly there's a sizable chunk, one in four that don't. Um, is this them just accepting the result, I guess? I guess we don't know. But who are those people? So there's a, there's a definite, there's a huge party element to this as well. So um, something like, of those who voted Remain and say no to a second referendum, nearly half of them voted con- uh, would vote Conservative now. So, in contrast, you have um, the Tories only have 24% of the remain and yes to a second referendum crowd. Um, a huge chunk of that goes to Labour instead. So, if you are campaigning, for, if you are campaigning to have a second referendum and that's your ultimate goal, um, at the moment you're doing reasonably well with you know Labour remain and Lib Dem remain supporters, but you're really falling short on the Tory remainers who have kind of yeah, fallen in behind the party and mm. are, and are, if not, you know, happy with that direction, at least not rocking the boat. So this suggests that much as Boris Johnson broke ranks to support Leave, you'd almost need a senior Tory of some kind to broke, break ranks and call for a second referendum, Adam, wouldn't you? Perhaps through the medium of editing a major newspaper. One, one can only speculate. <laughs> Perhaps, yes, but as you guys have rightly pointed out, the line has been pretty clear mm. on this for a while, and I don't see... Looking at the article, the article 50 process is two years. I can't envisage an event that's going to be a catalyst for a major change within this, even, you know, within the parliamentary Tory party, people like Anna Salbury, who a few months ago were, you know, passionately, passionate critics of um, people like Boris Johnson, David Davis. Even she's kind of moderated her stance now and she's kind of on the boat with the rest of them, although reluctantly. Mm. So I, I, I'd be surprised if these numbers, if there was a fluctuation in these numbers over the next two years? It doesn't seem likely, but I guess we'll see what happens with, uh, with the uh, Brexit deal. I mean, on the Brexit deal, it does seem like um, expectations remain very high, pardon the pun. Um, I'm looking at YouGov numbers that say um, which of these essentially best reflects your view. No deal is better than a bad deal, 46%. A bad deal is better than no deal, 22%. So the public do seem to be buying this line uh, from the Leave side, or from, well, from the government side, frankly, uh, that no deal is kind of acceptable. Um, now, some people on the left, I guess, will say that's a, a pretty worrying sign, Adam, but I mean, what do you make of some of that? It's, it, it's a bit of a paradox, because it's... It, just change the word deal for anything else, and it doesn't really... The, the concept, you know, the idea of it doesn't really work. You know, would you rather have a bad banana or no banana? Well, I... I'd rather have no banana, thanks. Mm. Um, it's it's basically what this result just tells us is that that line has been effective, mm. and that that line is something that it, you know nearly half of the public accept. Um, so ultimately, whatever deal happens is going to be presented. It's not going to be presented as a bad deal that we should reject. It's going to be presented as a good deal, and then there will presumably be a large Tory majority to wave it through. Um, 
ultimately the, the no deal line is about um, you know, establishing some you know, establishing that you are willing to walk away from the negotiating table if the deal isn't good enough. So it's about trying to increase uh, the government's leverage with the Brexit negotiations. But ultimately, it doesn't tell us very much about what the public's reaction to an actual deal would be. I mean, one of the one of the key stories we haven't really touched upon yet is this: is Theresa May today saying that um, clearly war on Europe. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I put it quite those terms, but um, saying that essentially the, accusing the EU of uh, interfering uh, in, in, in sort of British British election, British democratic process. I mean, what do you make of that, Adam? I mean, I think that it, it, on the on on the um, on the uh, Remain side, on the left side, there's lots of people up in arms about this. But then, I mean, I, I, I personally, I must say, I have a slightly different view. I think if you look at it, no one made the EU release essentially a glorified transcript of a private dinner. Um, Theresa May is probably expected to respond to this. And she knows where her political bread is buttered in terms of uh, taking support from Conservatives and Leave voters. So it's not really that surprising the way she's reacted, is it? I think it's surprising in a sense that Theresa May's big USP is the fact that she's calm, she's stable... Uh, she's quite. A, she's always been a cautious prime minister, and to come out today and accuse people in Brussels of trying to influence the outcome of the general election—that's one hell of an accusation. In terms of what the impacts of what's happened today will be, um, of course, people on the left and journalists and maybe like former diplomats and kind of political <clears> experts <throat> will say this is awful. This undermines our negotiating position. We're destined for a bad deal. But I tell you what, the public will love this. They'll really love this. Leave voters. We'll say yes. This is what we asked for. This is what we didn't get. For, this is what we didn't get in Cameron. We've got a strong, patriotic prime minister who's willing to, you know, stick it to the arrogant EU. Mm. And I think there'll be some Remain voters who just want to get on with it and think, yeah, okay, you know, I'm patriotic. You know, and so I think this is, to me, this is just electioneering, mm. and the public will love it. I mean, how it will inter- how it will affect our negotiations with the EU over the next two years. That's subject to speculation, but I think, you know, polls published in the next few weeks, I wouldn't be surprised if Theresa May's approval ratings take another hike. Mm. It's hard to see how they can go higher amongst Conservatives well, and, and, and Leave voters. You should never say never in no. this current... I mean, Adam, Adam Drummond, bring you in here. I mean, isn't this a bit like boxing? I was a big fan of the Anthony Joshua fight at the weekend. Um, you know, all, all the, both boxers say they're going to knock each other out before the fight, and then after the fight, they all sort of hug and make friends and everything's fine. I mean, is the Brexit negotiations like that, or is that naive? Well, I mean, it, it's it's an interesting way of seeing it. I suppose um, <laughs> if you, I mean, remember in the Theresa May's Article Fifty letter, she there was a lot of warm language about wanting to construct an enduring partnership with the EU, and uh, you know, Britain succeeds if uh, you know Britain wants a, a, a prosperous partner and a, and a prosperous neighbour. is still the lar- you know, the largest market, um, so it's an interesting response, and I. It almost seemed, I mean, maybe she was spooked by the fact that a number of polls had Labour on 30%, but that mm. seems a bit unlikely. Um, it almost seems unnecessary because she's already got you know, most of the Leave voters. She's already got all the Conservative voters. She's already got you know, all of the all the people who seem likely to be swayed by this kind she's of... She's got the news cycle, though, now. This is one and of the things I well, want. Well, she's already, got, she's already got all of the, the newspapers who are likely to be very excited by this. They're already on side. So it, it's... It's curious how I mean, maybe there is a sense of complacency drifting in, and and you know, concerns about the Conservatives just coasting to a massive victory that maybe they haven't earned, but it's it just almost seems unnecessary. 
Let's uh, talk a bit about the uh, local elections tomorrow. <laughs> Norm normal circumstances would have been focusing on nothing else, or, uh, on this podcast anyway, um, in the run-up to them, but of course they've been overshadowed somewhat. Um, I mean, what are we looking at for Adam Payne, do, do we think, this week? I mean, for me, I'm kind of curious to see how the Lib Dems do, to be honest, because I'm, I'm noting this lack of breakthrough. I'm wondering whether a sort of good news cycle through gains in the local elections might benefit them. But, I mean, is there a risk that actually this doesn't really matter? Um, these local elections and mayoral elections, of course, are unusual because they're coming five weeks before a general election. They're coming slap bang in the middle of the campaign of the political parties. Um, so, in some ways, this could be a dress rehearsal for what happens at the general election. I think you're right. The Lib Dem votes one to look out for. I think a um, number of academics have predicted gains of around 70 seats, something like that, mm -hmm. for the Lib Dems, while UKIP are predicted to lose seats, having performed well in 2013. And, as you probably expect, the Tories are expected to make gains and Labour is expected to make losses. If I had to kind of pick out certain results to look out for, because there's hundreds upon hundreds of council seats to look at and you've got six mayoral elections, I think the West Midlands result is perhaps the story of the night. You've got uh, Andy Street, the Conservative candidate there, uh, who's competing against Labour. And according to the uh, Centre for Cities uh, estimations, I think Labour led the Tories by around 9% in the 2015 election. Obviously, that is within the polling gulf between Labour and Conservatives. If uh, Conservative Andy Street can win in West Midlands, that would be a great result mm. for the Conservatives and a real body blow to Jeremy Corbyn, especially what with five or four weeks before the general election. I wonder this, um, Adam Drummond, this, this mm. blank check thing, um, if, if, if Labour do very badly and lose scores of seats um, in the local elections this weekend, could it be that people, Labour voters look at that and think, oh, good Christ, we've got to, we've got to show up in five weeks, otherwise we're in for a meltdown? Well, yeah, those, um, I remember back in 2010, in the midst of Clegmania, when Labour were coming third in most polls, and I think there was a genuine rallying effect there among possibly lapsed or unenthusiastic Labour voters that, you know, holy crap, we're going to come a third, we have to get out and turn mm -hmm. out. So that may have helped them in the end, as well as a bit of a polling miss for the Lib Dems. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, <clears throat> I think the, the blank check, again, it's, it's the thing with, with Tony Blair's interventions, that it's often the right message and the wrong messenger, but I think there's a, it, it's a sensible point that once all of the talk becomes about just how big the Tories majority is going to be and just how much they're going to win by, um, it's almost becomes a little bit self-defeating and it starts to become a little bit concerning. Um, so yeah, that, there's a reason why you know, lots of Labour MPs, that's their personal appeal that they're making to their electorates, is that, okay, we're not going to win the country, but you can at least send a Labour MP back to stop um, the Tories having a complete free hand. Mm. So maybe with, um, again, there's the question of how much local elections differ from general elections. There's a chart that we've got from... Uh, just amalgamating the various results, which show um, the Conservatives narrowly winning the local elections in 1983 and then dominating in the general election a couple of weeks later, and then a similar thing happening in the 1987 election. Mm. Um, so the, the connection between local results and national results can be a little Shouldn't bit... Shouldn't be over-exaggerated, maybe. I mean, we're, final word, let's talk about turnout. Mm. I mean, Adam, you were talking about the... Um, difficulties the pollsters face. We don't quite know if we've got over the issues in 2015. Uh, problem of snap elections is they come quite quickly, right? Yeah. So we're not 100% we're not sure. I mean, one of the real problems is turnout, isn't it? Because we know that it's really hard to get a representative sample of voters. Mm -hmm. And I suppose there's every reason to think that this election won't have 
the same level of turnout we've had in, in, in the past. I mean, do you think that benefits one party or the other? I mean, do you think that makes polls less easy to trust this time? It, it's difficult to say whether it benefits one party or the other, because obviously in, in, in 97, Labour won by about 10 points and 150 or so seats, and turnout was about 70%, and then four years later, turnout was about 10 to 13 points lower, and they won by exactly the same mm -hmm. amount. So the question of whether it benefits or, or doesn't benefit one party um, is a bit difficult. Um, it's... It's from a polling perspective, in a way, yeah, turnout is always the most difficult issue because it's just it, you are making a huge number of assumptions and judgments, some of which are data based and some of which are, like I said, judgment calls based on what's happened elsewhere. Um, to an extent, though, also, um, this election's come at quite a good time because we had a major high turnout national vote last year and we had a general election the year before that. In Scotland, in particular, you've had major national for Scotland votes every year for the last um, three years. So as far as, you know, if you're waiting to pass votes, there's a lot of really relatively up-to-date data that you can tack back to. Um, whereas in 2015, we were five years on from a general election, so any sort of past political behaviour um, work that we could do, apart from in Scotland, was much more out-of-date than mm -hmm. it often normally is. But you're right, turnout is the most difficult thing to model and the area where if we come unstuck, we will come unstuck. I mean, final word to Adam Payne. I mean, when you're... Um, out and about meeting sort of voters, meeting politicians, uh, and so on. I mean, what do you get? What sense do you get from turnout in this uh, this election that's coming up? The conventional wisdom is very much that turnout is going to be quite low. But do you, do you share that? I mean, it, the the campaign's still early, and I've only been able to speak to certain people, a, a limited number of people in constituencies. I think there's two ways of looking at it. Really, I think one theory is that people are fatigued after the referendum. There was that clip that went viral. Of the woman who's in a car, kind of, one, yeah, yeah, not yeah. another one. I think some people might be able to sympathise with that. Imagine being in Scotland. <laughs> of course, yeah, but at the same time, you know, I think what the EU referendum did for a lot of people was kind of wake them up yeah. and kind of give them a sense of political appetite. So I think if, if I was to bet on this, um, I'd say the turnout might be surprisingly high. Um, I'm not sure we're ready to put a number on it. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are, there, are, there are some pretty gloomy projections about what turnout could be but I just think because I think there's a, a renewed political appetite in this country especially for people who perhaps haven't got the result they wanted in Scotland or a new year referendum so I think it's potential for the turnout to be perhaps higher than some people are predicting but probably famous last words <laughs> watch it be <laughs> yeah. abysmal well, that's the, certainly something that we'll be keeping a very close eye on. That's all we've got time for for this week's politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future where we will, of course, uh, be covering the campaign and related polling in lots of detail. Next week, we'll be dissecting the uh, results from the local elections and asking what impact they will have on the eventual result in the general in five weeks' time. Um, but if you like what you heard today, please do subscribe on iTunes and other podcast apps. Do share us on social media. Tell your friends about us. Like our Facebook page. That's Polling Matters. Anything that you can do uh, to share the podcast and get our name out there really helps the episode, um, really helps the podcast. And we very much appreciate your efforts. But in the meantime, there is no, <clears throat> no music this week. Uh, by popular demand, we have put a bullet <laughs> in the back of the head of using Happy Days. Uh, by whoever it was, Ian Holmes. Uh, we're back to the swooshes. Um, but do, as I, as I say, uh, do share the podcast as much as you can. And thanks for listening. <laughs>